Well, good morning again, Bethel Church. For those of you who are kind of looking up at me and wondering, who is that guy? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. My name is Stephen Ganchow. I'm the pastor of Counseling Ministries here at the church. And it is my privilege this morning to open up God's Word with you as we continue in our Family Month series. Family Month is an important time at Bethel Church because our church is filled with men and women who have committed to doing lives together and brought children into the world and want to raise them under the knowledge and understanding of the Bible. So January is significant every single year because we want to train and equip you in God's Word as best as we can to that end. And as the pastor of counseling, it is a privilege for me then to be able to have the opportunity most Januaries to do this with you. And this morning we're going to continue in a very specific way. We've been building to today and we're going to build from today. I'd like you to think of family month from the book of Romans almost as something of a progression where we're building from one place to the end and trying to do what we can to equip us all to be gospelized families from the book of Romans. Before that, though, let me just share a little bit about why I'm going to approach God's Word the way that I am today. First, because I have the privilege of doing counseling, I find myself very often in the midst of very difficult life circumstances. I find myself as one who is in the trenches with people, doing life with them in a really intimate basis and walking them through very difficult things. So it brings with that some knowledge about how it is that men and women can really approach the Bible and how it is we can apply it to our lives in a very specific way. Furthermore, for those of you online this morning, I am one of those folks that's behind the voice of Bethel on Sunday mornings that helps you create community and throughout the week. And in doing that, I, I've gotten to know our church, particularly over the last year, in a way that I would have never done that before, in a way that has made me aware of some of the needs of our church that may not have evidenced themselves had 2020 not happened the way that it did. So that all will influence how it is that we go to the Bible this morning. Before that, though, I'd like to just note maybe two things. One of them is about a need for community. As one who has been just in the trenches of life with people, one of the needs that arose last year more than any other time, I think, in my lifetime has been the need for community. So this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're not plugged into a small group, if you're not plugged into really any other Christian community, Today is the day. If you're online, that's why we use those comment features. That's why they're on during the services. That's why we have Zoom small groups and in-person small groups, Women of the Word, BRC, all those things. Because if last year showed us anything, we need each other. We, we need to be doing life together. So I cannot encourage you enough, pursue Christian community. The second thing that I would highlight for you is related to some of the things that Bethel has produced over the last year. Later on today, you're going to see another Bethel backstage come out. Throughout the week, we have varying social media posts. We have a very thriving blog ministry. And I share that with you particularly because, again, the pastoral staff and the directors, we have spent a lot of time trying to get into your lives and know what it is that people need right now in this season. And we want to engage with you where, we're at, where you're at. So, for example, in the month of January 2021, one of the things we saw over the last eight months was a need for Christian life habits to be evident and really second nature. So, pastors and directors over this month were putting out two different blogs every single week on how it is we can equip you to do that in a way that it becomes second nature, where getting up and reading your Bible and praying is not like, oh, I got to check that box, but it's, I really desire to know Jesus in a deep and intimate way. Because last year, in an unprecedented season, that evidenced itself as being a need. So I want to encourage you, 
instead of scrolling through social media, instead of just kind of carrying on about your day, I encourage you to take 2021 to be the year, to be the year where spiritual change, spiritual enhancement, and solid Christian life disciplines become a way of life for you. So with that, let's, let's transition into God's Word then and continue in our Family Month series. In week one of this series, Pastor Steve outlined the redemptive story and how it is in the book of Romans that we understand our place as Christians. What we did is we saw that men, women, husbands, wives, children, we are not just members of our family, but we are members of the family of God. And our families are a part of God's big redemptive story throughout the whole of creation. What that means is this, and this is very important. It means that right now, you and I, all of us, whether you're online or here in the room, you have a specific part in God's story. And your life right now, what's happening in your life right now, is part of what God is doing in the history of all of creation. And as families, we need to know how it is we approach that. We need to know how it is that we think about that. We need to know what being justified by faith looks like in the context of the family and speak gospel truth to one another in that way. Because the consequences of not doing that are very dire. If that was kind of our foundation, what happened last week then is we took a step forward. If our families need to be part of God's redemptive story, last week Pastor Steve talked about the gospelized husband, how he is to be an example of God's redemptive and sacrificial love in the way he serves his wife and family. He is to lovingly lead the way that God lovingly leads his people. He's to take servant leadership seriously and consistently, for example, pursue a mindset of forgiveness. He then closed last week with a very important exhortation that I want to remind you of right now. He reminded us that for some men, for some husbands, they have not done a great job of leading spiritually in their homes before. Or maybe you're newly married and we're like, I've never had to do this before. And he encouraged families, if your husband, if your dad is trying something new, if he's trying to lead, to extend him the grace to do so, to encourage him along the way. Because it, honestly, it can be scary to start something like that, especially if you've not done it well before. If you've not led in a way that has been well-received or not at all, to suddenly try and lead your family in a Bible study can be a difficult, if not nerve-wracking thing. So show grace to the men as they begin that process for you and in your lives. Transitioning to today then, if we've talked about the redemptive story, we talked about the gospelized husband, today we're going to talk about the gospelized wife. And it seems as though, before we would continue that, that I should maybe address the elephant in the room. I am a man. Are you shocked by that? I'm a man who is going to outline for you not just the role of a wife, but the role of what a Christian woman should be doing. And I, I acknowledge this on the front side because it is tremendously important that you know that I have factored that into how it is that we are approaching the Bible today. We live in a cultural era right now where at any time for a male to get up and talk about how it is that a woman should do much of anything is inherently frowned upon. And some of you right now, the very fact that I'm even acknowledging this, it may just be grating a little bit. So what I'm going to ask for in advance is your trust and your focused attention because I have sought diligently to make sure that I do not give you maybe the same Christian rhetoric that you've heard at another church or maybe were raised under somewhere else. But instead, 
know that we're going to approach God's Word in a very specific and unique way. In preparation for this, I think I read somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen strong female theologians that our pastoral team would trust on this subject. I sought out good biblical counselors and Christian counselors. I talked with almost every single woman, not all, but almost every single woman on our staff and kind of ran what we were going to talk through by them today in preparation to ensure that I do not offend or, you know, have everybody leaving angry. Because quite frankly, that is, that's a very real reality. So I'm going to ask for your trust and your focused attention as we dive into what God's Word says. And we're going to begin today then in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. If you have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen here in a minute. And to complement how Pastor Steve approached the gospelized husband last week, I'm going to approach it in a similar way, albeit um, from a different passage of Scripture. We're going to start with the concept of identity. What is the identity of a gospelized wife? We find the beginnings of that in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, you'll note that I was repeatedly emphasizing a specific pronoun, we, because we encompasses all Christians. This is Christ-following men and Christ-following women. And as we have addressed throughout the book of Romans in great detail in our now three-year study of this book, Christians are called into a justified relationship with God where we, all of us, all men, all women in Christ, we transition from one thing to another. Our identity inherently changes. The Bible describes us as being an enemy of God in sin, an enemy of God because of sin. And then as Romans 5.1 outlines for us, we are justified by faith through grace. This creates a distinct change. We change from enemies, Romans 5.10, to heirs. Romans 8, 17, from enemies to heirs. Ladies, what that means, and this is important, what that means is in faith, you are a daughter of God. You are a daughter of God before anything else. The we in this passage has no gender qualifier. It applies to you. You are not just a daughter of God through your husband. You are not just a daughter of God through a father or someone else. In Jesus, you are a daughter of God, and there is no gender qualifier here at all. Listen to Romans 6.11. It makes it very clear. It says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, enemies of God, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, heirs. Romans 8, 16 and 17 continues, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is, this is tremendously important because you might be wondering why we start here. Of all the places to start, why here? Because far too often what happens in any discussion on marriage, anywhere in the church, is we prematurely enter into what we'll call the roles discussion. And what we learn here, if we are an heir of Christ first, is that our primary identity is not husband or wife. In fact, husband and wife, they become secondary identities in God's economy. 
We cannot just start with the designations or responsibilities of husband and wife because we will end up starting in the wrong place. And if you start in the wrong place, what's going to end up happening is very naturally, your mind will tend to wander towards the responsibilities, obligations, or roles that come with the secondary identity because you are starting in the wrong place. And if you get stuck on phrases or words, you end up placing the emphasis of your life on something else this becomes massively problematic because if this is, again, a progression, you kind of just skip step one. And if you skip step one, you're missing the foundation. If you start at the wrong place with the wrong identifier, if you identify primarily as a wife, what is going to happen when your marriage begins to deteriorate? If you identify primarily as a mom, what happens when your children wander away from the Lord? What happens when the walls of your home start to shake a little bit? Your identity shakes right along with it. Things get very, very rocky very, very quickly. What ends up happening, best case scenario, if you are operating out of a secondary identity such as wife, you will only ever end up partially self-aware because you're missing the foundational component to who you are. Worst case scenario is you become aware over time and then you've got to work backwards so that you can work forwards again, which is incredibly frustrating. And I'm sure some of you who have grown in this know exactly what I'm talking about. Church family, hear me. Our understanding of marriage cannot and does not start in Ephesians 5, the latter part of it. It cannot or does not start in Proverbs 31. It cannot or does not Start in 1 Peter 3. We can't. Let me say it this way. When you start there, you build your entire identity. If you are building your entire identity on what the Bible just says about being a wife, you build on the wrong foundation. And what happens when you build on the wrong foundation? Jesus tells us that in the Sermon on the Mount. Consider Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell. And how great was the fall. If your identity does not start in Jesus and you are identifying yourself by something else, when the tumultuous trials of life come upon you, if your identity is not primarily daughter of God, the walls will shake and your house will fall. If your identity is not founded on the rock, Nothing else is going to end up mattering because in time, the world will let us down. Ladies, if you are in Jesus, your primary identity is not wife and it is not mom. It is daughter of God and co-heir with Christ. This changes everything. It changes everything. So here's what we're going to do. Men, look at your wives if they're with you. Look at your wives right now. Children, look at your moms. If you're online and all of you are at home right now, everybody, eyes on mom. She's going to love this. Eyes on mom. Eyes on your wife. She is not just your wife. She is not just your mom. She is a daughter of God and a co-heir with Christ. And you must treat her that way. 
Because what happens when we treat someone as a secondary identity, when we treat them as something other than what they are or who they are, do you know what happens? You sin against them. You do not want to treat your mom or your wife like you own her. You don't. Jesus does. She is a co-heir with Christ. We want to drive this point home. In the book of Galatians, which is very, very similar to the book of Romans, albeit slightly more summarized, Paul is outlining once again faith and its effectiveness, okay? And in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 27, Paul says this, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no fail, there is, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. This would have been an absolutely radical statement to have made at the time. At this point in history, it would be the understatement of the day to say that women were not terribly well respected. They were not respected in the way that they deserved. So for Paul then to eliminate ethnic distinction, to eliminate slave or free distinction, to eliminate gender distinctions in Christ would have been mind-altering to all who would have heard this. So let me kind of say this in a more culturally appropriate vernacular. What Paul is saying in both Romans and Galatians is this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Men, you are sons of God, but ladies, you are daughters of God, heirs with Christ. That is your identity, period. That is who you are, and everything in your life happens because you are a daughter of God. The starting place for understanding how to be a gospelized wife is understanding your foundational identity. The gospelized wife starts by identifying herself first and foremost as a Christian woman. First and foremost as a Christian woman. That means my wife, her primary identity is not Stephen's wife. It's daughter of Jesus and heir with Christ. Because that means that as a Christian, the designation of Christian comes before everything. If it applies for the wife, again, that gender pronoun, we, if it applies to her, it applies to all of us. Your, if you are listening right now and Jesus is your Savior, your primary identity is heir of Christ. And that should absolutely change the way you look at your life. You're not a husband first. You're not a child first. You are not whatever you do in the world first. Who you are is a son or a daughter of God. For the gospelized wife, then, what does that mean? It means that being a daughter of God, it informs how it is you go about being a wife. It informs, it influences how you are a mom. It should inform everything in your life. It should influence the conduct and approach to how it is that you speak, how it is that you act, and all that you do because it is your primary identity. Husbands, boyfriends, if you are not encouraging your wife, your girlfriend, or your intended to be to live out her primary identity as a Christian first, you are doing something wrong. We have to operate as if we are all Christians first. Otherwise, we guarantee ourselves heartache and pain. So often, when couples come to me in counseling, it is because their identity is out of order. And if their identity is out of order, child, wife, Christian, for example… What's going to happen is your whole foundation is going to crack. 
Water is going to seep into those cracks. It's going to erode and deteriorate over time. And that is where the practical problems of life come in. So if identity, heir of Christ, is the first thing that a gospelized wife must be thinking, how then does she go about executing that role? How does she live out her primary role of co-heir of Christ within the role of marriage? I thought about this at great length, and I think that if I asked for a poll or I asked a number of people what they thought on this subject matter, I'd get a bunch of different answers, but they'd all kind of be similar. And I came up with myself about eight of them. And instead of trying to give you eight and then very little practical application, I picked one. I picked one that I think touches about everything else so that you leave today with some very specific practical application that you can take to the bank. So I'll start with this. A gospelized wife whose primary identity is daughter of Christ, striving to live like Jesus, she will pursue the character trait of a trusted companion. A trusted companion. That's a very specific thing. In the Bible, throughout the whole of it, the word companion had a fairly consistent definition. Companions were close allies and described those who had been bound together. They helped one another. They were allied or in league with one another. Sometimes the word is used when you had two armies that were warring, and then those two armies identified a larger, bigger army that they needed to go and like team up and stop. So those two armies, it was like the enemy of the enemy was my friend. So they would team up. They would become companions, and they would go after their mutual enemy. Biblical companionship, then, is completely characterized by close fellowship, intimate relationship formed around common goals and values. It has been my experience, both as a pastor and as a counselor, that the healthiest marriages, the healthiest husbands, the most gospelized wives are those who see themselves practically as a companion, as someone that is in an intimate relationship with someone else, doing life with them for the purpose of accomplishing their agreed-upon roles. They share a vision for a mutually beneficial future. They are allied to that end. They have fellowship together consistently around their dreams and around their goals. Simply put, they function as a unit or they function as a team. They work together. Let me give you this analogy. Think of it this way. When you get married, it's an awful lot like you and your spouse start running a three-legged race together. You ever run a three-legged race? Show of hands. Who's ever run a three-legged race in here? A lot of people. If you're online in that community section, I want to hear who's run a three-legged race. Three-legged three races are very interesting. I grew up in the Iwana program. I did Iwana. This is going to be fun. I grew up in Iwana. And in the Iwana Olympics, I ran the three-legged race. Melissa, we need, the th we need the Iwana Olympics back, just so we're all clear. The Iwana Olympics was a lot of fun, and I ran the three-legged race. The thing about the three-legged race, at least the way you did it, is they kind of put you together like one here and one here, and then you had your arm around someone. I thought about embarrassing my wife and asking her to come up here. I didn't do it. I know better. But I, this is kind of how you do it. You kind of strap yourselves together, and like any good marriage, what happens? The two become one. You form a single unit to run the race together. And I'm not going to lie to you, we won the three-legged race. But we didn't win because we were the person that I was running with, we were inherently athletic. We were actually coached on how to run a three-legged race well. Has anybody ever been coached on running a three-legged race? Yeah, we were coached on running the three-legged race. And it looked an awful lot like this. 
they told us that like in any sport, a three-legged three race runners have roles. They have a specific spot that they fill. There is a leader and there is a supporter, and those two designations are of highest value because those two have to work together. What the leader does is he helps set the tone. He finds out, okay, how tall are you? How tall am I? Are you right-legged or left-legged? So when we're running, do you need to be on the inside or the outside? What happens is the leader in the three-legged race is able to then seek out the support and the ideas and the insight of his supporter so that they run the three-legged race well. Now, here's the thing. I've practiced many three-legged races. I've watched a lot of three-legged races. I've seen many, many people get hurt running a three-legged race. Do you know why? Because the leader and the supporter did not work together. When one fell, the other person just tried to carry him along. That does not end well. Or when one falls, the other person falls on top of them. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I've actually seen somebody like, they didn't break their knee, but they did something really horrible to their knee many years ago because they fell, one person tried to stay up. They were not working together as companions. They didn't talk in advance. They didn't factor in, oh, hey, we're going to go up, we're, go we're coming up to a curve. Knowing that there's a curve in the race, should you be on the inside or on the outside? They didn't have healthy communication. They didn't have the things that make companions do what they do because companions, they trust one another. They work together. They support one another. They ask good questions. Because if they're going to be partners, they fight for trust. They don't just want, but they desire the valuable input of the person that they are running the three-legged race with because that is how you run away a race with precision and effectiveness. Ladies, if there is one thing that you can do and take to the bank today that will revolutionize your marriage, it is pursue this type of mindset with your husband. Pursue the mindset and the activity of being a trusted companion. Because anything short of this, and maybe some of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now, anything short of this will, best case scenario, you'll be running a race of marriage, you'll be pursuing things together, but it is not an effective race because you are not on the same page. One of you sees like a bump coming up ahead, and you're going, and one of you's veering to the left, the other one's veering to the right, and you're not, you're not communicating, you're not talking together. The leader is just kind of thinking, well, they're going to follow me, right? Oh, no. They don't agree. Because the leader's not thinking about what the supporter sees because they're not communicating. Best case scenario, they like kind of try and hop over like the bump with their combined leg. You ever feel like that in marriage? Worst case scenario, and what ultimately happens for many over time, is they start working against each other. There's a breakdown in companionship. There's a breakdown in trust. And what happens over time is they start to naturally wander apart. If you're running a three-legged race and you're kind of like hanging on by the shirt over here and you're kind of running against each other, you're going to fall. You're going to hurt yourself. Sometimes that happens in marriage too. And then it's like, how do we even pick ourselves up? We're still strapped together. This would be so much easier if we were apart. You ever thought that? That is why companionship is so important. Husbands and wives, companionship is the single highest priority that in your mind you need to pursue with your spouse. 
If you can pursue being a companion to them, someone that they are allied with, someone that they trust, someone they're, work to get, someone they're working together with, it's a way to fundamentally change how you go about everything. If you remember that your primary identity is co-heir of Christ, what that's going to do, it's, it's going it's to act a lot like this pair of glasses. You're going to put it on and you're going to see everything more clearly. You're going to see then what does a gospelized husband or wife do because you can see things clearly. But if you are not operating like a daughter of God or a son of God primarily, your vision will be distorted. You are going to miss things and trouble will be the result. And over time, this is what's going to happen very specifically. Individual goals, individual desires, individual interests begin to take priority because the good of the team, it naturally breaks down if it is not maintenanced over time. And then what happens is something like compromise works its way in. How many of you, online too, I want to see this in the comment feed later on, how many of you have ever been told compromise is good in marriage? Compromise is good. Too many people, when I meet with them in counseling, say, well, we compromised. Compromise is two people sacrificing something and meeting in the middle, meaning both people lose. When both people lose, is that trust building? The Bible does not call us to sacrifice. In fact, sacrifice is, or excuse me, compromise. Compromise is only ever good in matters of preference. Sacrifice, sacrificial love is what the Bible calls us to. Compromise diminishes companionship. Ladies, you must pursue the mindset of being a trusted companion. And if you do that, your husband should be returning that same investment in kind. Men and women, this must be a priority to us because companions are friends. And typically then what happens? If I'm going to kind of bring this home, what happens when compromise enters the equation, when companionship is diminished and you become two people living together and not doing life together? This is when you come for counseling and people suddenly get very concerned about who's in charge. It's when compromise has seeped its way in, individual goals, investments, and desires become primary that suddenly everybody's concerned about who's making decisions. Suddenly, she's not following my lead. He's not leading the way Christ leads the church. I shouldn't have to follow that kind of leadership. Suddenly, everybody gets concerned about how decisions are even made. And we forget, functionally, to have and to hold for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health till death do us part. We forget that our vows, the things that we commit to in marriage, we forget that they were designed to make us companions. Companionship rooted in your primary identity can fundamentally change your entire approach to marriage. Because trusted companions, close allies, they pursue intimate friendship, they pursue common goals. Don't get lost in your secondary identities. Stay focused on the main thing. You are a daughter of God. You're a son of God. So with that said then, what are the identifiers of a gospelized wife? If a gospelized wife is striving to be a trusted companion, what are the things that characterize trusted companionship? I've got eight or nine of these that I want to share with you. 
because they're significant, and they will help you understand from moment to moment, what can I be doing in this situation? The first is one I just mentioned. The gospelized wife pursues friendship with her husband. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. The type of friendship that is being characterized and described here is very specific. And in fact, much like companion has a long-standing understanding in Scripture. It's the type of friendship and relationship that is t- uh, tested, that when tested gets stronger. It doesn't waver because it's characterized by sacrificial love. And sacrificial love, it, that could be a category all on its own. We could talk about sacrificial love tonight or today and in every sermon moving forward if we were going to continue to talk about this particular subject. But let me say it this way. Sacrificial love in a companionship-oriented relationship is the height. If you are loving sacrificially, if you are not stuck in a position of compromise where two people are trying to like war for their individual interests, if you're able to love sacrificially and do that with confidence, that is the height of friendship. Number two, a gospelized wife pursues intimate relationship. Am I talking about the sexual components of relationships? No. What has happened to the word intimate is culture has redefined it and tried to reinterpret it to mean kind of a component of its definition and not the totality of it. In fact, what intimacy is, intimacy is a lot like a barometer. It's like a unit of measurement. We can use intimacy in an effort to determine what is the overall strength of our relationship. Romans 12.10 reminds us to be devoted to one another, for example. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10 instruct us to love deeply, to show willing hospitality, to be faithful, consistent stewards. Intimacy in our relationships are those that are characterized by trust. They're characterized by outpourings of love. They're characterized by a willingness to show intentional hospitality. They're characterized by sacrifice and good stewardship. And then, and then, that is where all of those relationship qualities are culminated in the sexual component of the marriage relationship. It is the practical areas of intimacy that reflect, that are reflected, excuse me, in sexuality. Intimacy is relational first and everything else second. Number three, a gospelized wife is trustworthy and pursues trustworthiness. Consider Ecclesiastes 4.10. It says, for, either of, for if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Implicit to an intimate relationship is trust. A husband should have ample trust that his wife is working with him to accomplish their Christian identity-focused goals in marriage. And make no mistake, if your goals are not cultivated with your primary identity in mind, then this is something that needs to get rethought. One of the things that happens most often, one of the things, in fact, that happens first is that trust begins to erode when problems enter the marriage equation, if I can say it that way. It's always, not always, often something small. Something like, boy, I really don't agree with that statement. 
And it's that lack of agreement then that kind of plants that seed in the heart of the other person. I can't really trust them. Like, that, that really makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. And that seed that gets planted in the heart, it grows over time if it goes unaddressed. If you want to have a trusting relationship with your spouse, you have to pursue communication. You have to pursue clarity. And you have to ask good questions. So ladies, if you've shared something with your husbands and you're not sure he hears you, you need to ask. And you need to pursue him to ensure that he A, hears you, but B, trusts you. And men, hear me. Your wives coming to you and asking you questions is not nagging. It's communication. I, I was waiting for an amen. Somebody needs to be amening that. Seriously, we, the, these are the things we take for granted. You got to understand, the, these are the things that wind up people in marriage counseling. Because they stop acting as friends, they stop acting as companions, trust just erodes over time, and then before you know it, you're not living out your primary identity as co-heir of Christ anymore. You're concerned about all the broken things that you're surrounded by, you're concerned that the foundation of your house is gone, and it all started with a little seed of broken trust. Friends, you must pursue intimate communication, which naturally needs to number, leads to number four. As a daughter of God, ladies, and a co-heir of Christ, you have access to the wonderful counselor in the Holy Spirit. A gospelized wife, then, should be a trusted confidant to her husband. Proverbs 31.26 says that a wife should open her mouth and share wisdom and teach kindness. Ladies, you need to be praying that the, that the Lord gives you wisdom. You need to be praying that the Lord gives you wisdom for the direction and the trajectory of your family. And men, you want your wives praying for wisdom. You want her pursuing the face of God, and you want her to be a trusted confidant and a trusted informant to you. Ladies, among the most significant things that you can do is be a great listener, a patient responder, and a willing participant in conversation. Men, what that means is you must also be a willing participant in conversation. If this is an area of struggle in your marriage, I have, a, I have a recommendation for you. If you need to have a scheduled time where you kind of plan in your mind, okay, for 60 minutes, we're going to have intentional dialogue about the direction of our family. We're going to have intentional dialogue about money. We're going to have an intentional conversation about the areas of life that you and your family need to work on together. You need to A, trust each other to do that, but then B, follow through on the scheduled time. Don't make this more difficult than it needs to be. Don't wait until 7.30 at night, 8.30 at night, you're putting the kids to bed, you're trying to like, after all the other things that you've done that day, like, let's slam in a conversation about money here at like 9 o'clock. It's a terrible idea. Schedule it. Sunday afternoon, football's almost over. Schedule it. Friday night, one date night a month, it's a business meeting. It's a family business meeting. Talk about the things of life. And husbands, trust your wives. She has access as a co-heir in Christ and daughter of God to the same Holy Spirit that you do. You need to be working together. And you need to trust her. You need to trust her to help and influence how you think about all of the things related to your marriage. Number five, a gospelized wife prays for her husband, Ephesians 6.18. The best means, 
the best means of ensuring that your family stays on the right trajectory. If your husband is supposed to be the leader of the home, is pray that God is the leader of your husband. Pray that God is constantly in front of him. Pray that he is going to be a gospelized husband, the way Pastor Steve preached on last week. Pray that God gives him a clear vision and trajectory. Pray that he openly and willingly communicates with you. Take this before the throne of God. In Daniel chapter 10, God tells Daniel through the angel Gabriel, God hears you. Ladies, pray with diligence and fervency and expectancy and faith. God hears you. Pray for your husbands. We need you to pray for us. Just the other day, my wife sent me a text in the middle of the day. I had something really traumatic going on, and she sent me a text, and all it said is, hey, I know that this is the hour you're doing that thing. I prayed for you. And it, like, it got me right there. I didn't, she doesn't know that. She does now. Pray for your husbands. Don't just be like, oh, hey, prayed for you today. Pat him on the back, send him on his way. Pray for your husbands. Number six, a gospelized wife is intentional. Is this where he's going to talk about sex? No. No. The best means of being intentional is to be a good question asker. Learn the areas that you can best encourage and serve your husband. Learn what it is that he is thinking. Learn what he thinks throughout the day. Intentionality, you see, is very, very focused. It's not haphazard, it's not random, and it does not assume. Assuming, there's a cultural phrase about assuming, but it's not good because what happens is when we assume things, we're basically, we're divining something out of nothing. An assumption is a thought or idea based on nothing. A presumption is a thought or idea based on something. It's a foundation that we can stand on. Ladies, be women of presumption. Know your husband so that you can intentionally love and serve them. Assumptions are among the most dangerous things that can take place in marriages. It is assumptions in the three-legged race of life where you, pre you, you are assuming, oh yeah, he can probably see that up there because I can see it. He must be able to see it. Ladies, have you ever seen something your husband didn't see? Be intentional. Number seven, be engaged. 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us to be sober-minded and watchful because Satan is prowling like a roaring lion, literally looking to devour our marriages. You have to remember, marriage is a picture of the gospel. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. You must pursue being engaged. What does that mean? It means don't let things slip. Don't make excuses. If there are problems, communicate. Be perceptive. Pursue a God-honoring, spouse-honoring sacrifice. Trust God's leading of your husband. If you don't, ask good questions along the way. Stay intimately engaged with one another. Don't naturally drift apart because I assure you, Satan will exploit every weakness in your marriage. He looks to drive a wedge between you and separate you in the three-legged race. He wants to knock you down and hurt you. Stay engaged. It will prevent him from doing so. Number eight, the gospelized wife forgives and lets love cover a multitude of wrongs. And then finally, number nine, and this is significant, the gospelized wife does not enable. She's not an enabler. 
This is difficult for all of us. Enabling is essentially when you see something that someone else does and you're like, mm, pick up the rug, right under there. We're going to put that rug back down. Ephesians 5.11 reminds us to not take part in any works of darkness, but bring everything into the light. We all sin. We all screw up from time to time. But enabling is among the most dangerous things that can happen because when you enable someone, you allow broken trust, you allow sin to just fester underneath the surface. Instead, with the same level of commitment that you are tempted by, pursue openness, transparency, and if necessary, help. You heard from Hope this morning, she got help. It was, it was weird, it was awkward, but she got help. Getting help is not bad. In fact, it may be the thing that saves your marriage. Now, here's the thing. This is the tip of the iceberg. We could talk for hours about the best possible ways to be a gospelized wife and a gospelized husband. These are the things that we need to have community around. These are the things in your small groups, both online and with other people, that you need to be talking about. These are the areas that we as Christians, we need to be diligent on. Because if they slip, if we're not intentional, we're not engaged, we're not living in our primary identity, in time, your marriages will erode. So while this was primarily focused at the gospelized woman, I submit this to all of us this morning, that if we live within the bounds of our primary identity as Christian first, you aggressively pursue being a trusted companion in your marriage, and you practice the above-mentioned things within the realm of your marriage, I do believe the best years of not just being a gospelized wife, but having a gospelized marriage are yet ahead.